собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is a recording of the event Navalny and Next, Possibilities, Prognosis, and Perceptions in Russia. I hosted this event a few weeks ago. The event was sponsored by the Davis Center for Russian East European Studies at Harvard University, the website Russia Matters, and the Center for Russian East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. After the botched attempt to poison Alexei Navalny in August 2020, the Kremlin has decided to sentence him to over two years in prison upon his return to Russia in January. Navalny responded with a bombshell video about the corruption around Putin's palace. Unsanctioned mass protest filled the two capitals and tens of provincial cities followed. The protesters were met with mass indiscriminate arrests and police violence. The political ante in this back and forth has certainly risen, but to what end? Russia has experienced the ebbs and flows of protest on the federal and local level for years. And while each eruption quickly elicits a sense that Russia is at a turning point, more cautious and sober assessments follow in the weeks and months after. So is what we're seeing something new or just more of the same? What do the protests suggest about Russian society, politics, and the state of Putin's power? Especially as Russia will hold parliamentary elections in September. I was joined by three guests to discuss these issues, Ilya Budurajskis, Svetlana Yerpilova, and Greg Yudin. Ilya Budurajskis is a political and cultural writer. He currently teaches at the Moscow School for Social and Economic Sciences and the School of Design at the Higher School of Economics. Budurajskis is currently a member of the editorial board of the Moscow Art Magazine and host of the Russian language podcast, Political Diary. His book, Dissidents Among Dissidents, was awarded the Andre Billy Prize in 2017. His most recent book, We All Live in the World Huntington Invented, treats modern Russian conservatism. Svetlana Yeriplova is a sociologist, a researcher with Public Sociology Laboratory for the Center for Independent Social Research in Russia, and a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki. Her research is focused on protest movements and collective action, political involvement, political socialization, youth and children's political participation, and cognition in Russia and abroad. She's written for a number of academic journals and Russian and international media. Greg Yudin is a professor of political philosophy at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. His research focuses on the political theory of democracy with a special emphasis on public opinion polls as a technology of representation and governance in contemporary politics. His book, Public Opinion, The Power of Numbers, was published in Russian 
by European University Press in 2020. He is also a regular contributor to several Russian media outlets. Here's Ilya Budryskis, Svetlana Yerplova, and Greg Yudin. It was a bit of a challenge for me to come up with, with questions that are both uh, relevant and interesting, but also that tries to capture all three of you diverse um, expertise and knowledge. But first, I wanted to start and uh, directed to you, Ilya, is that is, it's been six weeks since the protests in reaction to Alexei Navalny's arrest and his video on Putin's palace. Um, what is your assessment of the political and social situation in Russia at, at this moment, in the wake of, of this most recent eruption? So I think that uh, these uh, few weeks were very intense, were very dramatic and uh, very crucial for the political development in Russia, especially in a situation when, we, uh, when we're going to have the parliamentary elections uh, in the coming September. Uh, and of course, what we have now after these demonstrations, the wave of repressions, the unprecedented wave of repressions, uh, very much related to the further development of the uh, let's say, political process in Russia. So basically we see the very rapid uh, evolution of the uh, political system. And uh, of course, the events of the late January uh, somehow push this, these uh, changes uh, which were uh, in some way uh, predictable and rooted in the very logic of the of the um, uh, evolution of the political regime in our country. Svetlana, Greg, anything to add? What is your assessment of the situation? Yeah, I yeah, of course I uh, agree with uh, Ilya's comments because this uh, recent protests were really important for for the current situation and they contributed a lot to the ongoing crisis of the political regime uh, legitimacy in, in Russia. But um, I think what is uh, important to uh, mention here as well is uh, this crisis and like the processes which are going on in Russian domestic uh, politics. They are like uh, these are processes. So this is not uh, just something which uh, happens right away. And uh, also, not everything here is connected to the agenda which is uh, produced by Navalny and his team. Because, uh, for example, uh, recent uh, surveys, and I think actually Greg will, will talk more today about it, but recent surveys show that uh, protest uh, moods in Russia currently and uh, general dissatisfaction uh, of people with the situation in Russia are quite higher, but uh, not uh, that uh, many people who are dissatisfied fight with the situation, not that many of them uh, do actually support Navalny. And I think this is not uh, that bad, actually, because it gives a chance for different uh, political forces to propose something more concrete in order to attract this uh, dissatisfied people to their sides. And uh, it also gives us uh, a chance to have a, a political discussion in terms of kind of something more uh, concrete than just uh, this uh, uh, protest discourse of like uh, honest uh, people people are fighting against, against the corrupt and lying authority in power. So this is some, this is, will be interesting, I think, to observe during next uh, weeks and months. Well, I think what we are uh, seeing now is a part of the ongoing change of the political system. It actually was, has been launched last year with the change of the constitution. 
uh, and elimination of Alexei Navalny was part of this plan. And the plan, of course, was itself triggered by the slow erosion of uh, legitimacy of, of the political leader of Vladimir Putin. So el eliminating Navalny was part of this plan. It didn't work in the most brutal way. He proved to be stubborn enough to survive. Uh, but there's obviously in this new design, there's obviously no room uh, neither for Navalny himself as a key political figure uh, opposing Putin, nor uh, for, well, I'd say, nor for any independent politicians with any meaningful, visible uh, support. Just to, to, to give you a, a, a fact, I think last year there was a, a poll taken uh, by Levada Center, which uh, was interesting because it didn't ask the people directly uh, whether they like Putin or not, whether they uh, trust Putin or not, uh, because th this, this kind of question is very sensitive in Russia and it is almost bound to produce uh, predictable results. So they uh, kind of uh, suggested a different question of what are the, the political leaders, what are the politicians who are interesting for, for you, who we are interested in. And uh, several names came up, I think five or six of them. Putin was probably the first, but with a very tiny advantage over Navalny. And then uh, three or four pretty new names uh, came up in, uh, in, in this poll. So uh, what, I, what, I, what I want to say is that all of these people, except Putin, of course, are now uh, under arrest. You know, Svetlana, you, you pointed to it an interesting thing that I, I've been thinking about, because especially in this discussion today, I'd like to decenter Navalny as much as possible and think about the wider, the wider social activism and, and mass politics that's going on in Russia, both in the past, but also presently. Um, and but, you know, in, in the West and in, in American media, just as an example, we, we are treated to the fact that Navalny is touted is the leader, the leader of the Russian opposition movement. Um, Svetlana, is there an opposition movement in Russia? And, and if so, how do you understand it? Yeah, well, uh, this is <laughs> this is a good question. I guess it depends on uh, how do we define uh, opposition, right? So uh, you are right, of course, that there are many um, many different types of uh, social activism, less or more politicized. Although we actually do see the tendency of its uh, politicization right now, uh, and um, uh, then there is uh, also the Russian Communist Party, which is like a quite separate political, uh, I mean, it's not, uh, it's a systemic party, right? So this is a, par a part of uh, kind of systemic politics. But what we see right now, and what is interesting that on the wave of this uh, growing uh, dissatisfaction of the people with the political situation on, on the wave of this growing protest mood, this party is actually accumulating people's support in the regions, because in the regions, they actually do have quite a lot of kind of grassroots leaders and to popular support. Uh, so this is also something we should uh, not be blind to, right? So I think we should pay attention on, on this tendency and it could be interesting if they will uh, somehow collaborate with um, with more protest-oriented uh, leaders, uh, which could happen in, uh, in the next election. But the other question is whether uh, Navalny is a leader. And I think Navalny is a leader and he is a main kind of and the most visible leader right now, whether we like it or not. And uh, it's important to understand and, and to take it into account in our analysis and also in our kind of uh, 
if I may say, political action, how we respond to the situation, not only as like researchers, but as uh, citizens who care about what's, what's going on in Russia. Greg, you know, it's, it's, it's often touted, it's often said, you know, well, Russian opposition figures, they don't poll that high in Russian society. Um, you know, the, the protests themselves, okay, yeah, you have, you know, all over Russia, but, and you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, um, you know, participating, but it's a, it's a small minority of, of Russian citizens who are engaging in these actions. Uh, so how do you under, you know, is there a movement, uh, opposition movement and, and, and how do you understand this in, in reflection to the role polls play in this? Well, one thing uh, you have to, to keep in mind this, when discussing Russia is that it's extremely depoliticized country. To depoliticize to the limits, more than 90% of even of those who answer uh, opinion polls, and those I think are biased, but even discounting these bias, more than 90% of the, of the people responding to those polls think that they have no, literally zero influence on what's going on in the country. Talking politics is uh, is a sign of bad manners in in Russia. Uh, basically, when you want to spoil a party, you you start talking politics. So this is a prerequisite for the kind of regime we have here, and uh, this is a plebiscitarian regime, a, a regime that, which is based on on regular plebiscites. Well, one of the uh, most important peculiarities of a plebiscitarian regime is that it features a strong leader who pretends to have a direct connection to the people by passing all the, uh, all the bodies. And in, in, this, uh, in this system, of course, uh, both the government and the parliament, they are not supposed to be independent, supposed to be part of the machine executing uh, the orders of the leader. That, of course, in this situation, you, you cannot expect some kind of major search uh, in, uh, in numbers for any kind of opposition figure. Because when, uh, when it happens, it, it, it will immediately be in a sign of, of, of the change of the system itself. So it hasn't happened so far, which of course means that the system uh, survives. But uh, there are some, some indications uh, that make uh, the Kremlin worry, and I think uh, deservedly so. And those indications are that, uh, first of all, the president himself, his approval ratings are going lower. And uh, that hurts him because in a plebiscitarian system, you're not simply simply conducting plebiscites, but you uh, keep taking polls on a monthly uh, basis. And those polls are functioning as plebiscites. So basically, uh, the key is that the, both the people, the bureaucracy and the elites, all of them believe that there is a popular support behind the leader. So you have to reproduce this feeling. This is, this is the main engine of the system. If they stop believing that, then you're screwed. When the ratings go down, that starts hurting you. And that, already, that is already happening for two or three years. It started right after the 2018 presidential election, which was, of course, a, a de facto plebiscite. And now uh, it keeps uh, going down. At the same time, there is a huge demand for a political alternative. And it can be seen, well, you know, the, the, in, in the polls, you have two kinds of questions. One of them is whether you trust Vladimir Putin, and the other one is who are the politicians you trust. And those uh, two questions, they give completely different outcomes. 
As for the first question, Putin is around 60-65%, which is fine. Uh, as for the second question, uh, he's going down further and further since 2018, and now he's already below 30%. So there's a cleavage growing between these two questions. And most of the people wouldn't give any name when asked about the people uh, whom they trust. So there is a request for a political alternative. And of course, the gamble uh, started by Alexei Navalny is to exploit that, to actually to provide uh, a political solution, a vision that would answer this uh, major demand for a political alternative. It is already uh, reflected to a certain extent uh, in the opinion polls, but that, that cannot happen that that quickly. Ilya, how do you, as, as an observer, but also a, um, a somewhat of a participant in all of this, how do you understand? Is there an opposition movement in Russia? And what is your analysis or understanding of it? Uh, so uh, the, uh, I think that the, your question is very complicated because when we talk about Navalny as a leader of opposition movement, so it means that we have some kind of opposition as an institution where you have some more or less uh, open uh, procedure of uh, decision making, so, some kind of uh, coalition type of uh, movement and some kind of legal institutions where this uh, opposition can express uh, itself. Uh, so for, uh, for the moment we, we have no such uh, institutional opposition at all. As for the um, uh, parliamentary opposition for the Communist Party and uh, 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 Vladimir Zhirinovsky party, you can say that uh, of course they express uh, some, uh, some oppositional feelings which are quite broadly distributed um, uh, among the uh, people who vote for them, uh, but uh, they have uh, no their own full political subjectivity. So they are not able, I, I mean, as a central party, as a central apparatus of the party, they can't uh, produce their own decisions coming from their own vision of their uh, political strategy, demands, and so on. So that's why we have the opposition feelings, we have a demand for the political alternative, but we have no opposition uh, that have some kind of uh, structure where the uh, leader could be controlled from below. And that's the main problem of uh, Navalny and my main question to uh, Navalny, uh, not even for a moment, but during the several uh, years uh, already, uh, how the decision-making process is uh, organized because uh, the structure around Navalny is, uh, is not a political party, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's not a populist movement, it, it's a kind of a technical team which uh, has a very strong uh, personalist and vertical uh, character. So uh, in fact we have a big demand for the political opposition in the country, we have a broad opposition feeling, so we have an empty place of the institutionalized opposition, which is, uh, for the moment, uh, of course, occupied by Navalny. So that's, uh, that's the situation. Uh, yeah, I was uh, listening, I was thinking that the current situation is actually uh, worth comparing to, si to the situation we had during uh, mass protest of 2011-2012, uh, so so-called uh, for fire election movement, uh, when uh, people protested against falsification at the uh, parliamentary election in 2011 and then continued in 2012. Uh, so at that time, there were actually quite uh, many visible uh, political leaders among the protesters themselves. 
themselves and they were uh, they had different political views and they were kind of explicit about these different political views and uh, this is why at that time the so-called uh, coordination uh, com- not committee coordination council of the uh, opposition was uh, created and uh, there were like uh, left-wing uh, right-wing and liberal candidates all running for it and everybody who wanted could vote for several candidates so they wanted to see in this uh, in this council and at that time our research uh, showed that uh, a lot of people uh, regardless of their personal political preferences uh, they voted for like one left wing uh, one uh, right wing and one uh, liberal candidate uh, obviously not expressing their own political views but uh, they tried to uh, preserve uh, the unity of the movement right so and now the uh, the situation is quite uh, different because i would say that the dissatisfaction in the society in general is more uh, heterogeneous meaning that like more people from different social groups are dissatisfied although that's also important not not uh, all of them go to protest but as uh, as we see we have only kind of one visible whether we call him leader i would call still him a leader like a person who uh, presents himself as as a leader who is navalny obviously and in himself represents kind of a mix of left uh, right uh, liberal agenda and like more importantly uh, he he presents himself as uh, ideologically neutral. It's like, this is not really important what we are for right now because uh, we need to overthrow an authoritarian leader. And I think this is exactly why we can actually see some uh, request in the society, in the broader society of like dissatisfied people for some more uh, concrete proposals which, who, like, which would attract them to the side of whether we can say opposition, but protest maybe. Yeah, just uh, two short remarks on the uh, the movement question. First of all, I agree that there is uh, there is actually no movement at that point, and that is a, of, of course a, a difference from 2011 2012. This is not a movement; it is just a, a negative protest, an outburst, uh, and probably there is indeed uh, some sort of request for movement because I, I agree that this is, it might be a weakness uh, of Alexei Navalny and of, of his team that uh, basically they are not uh, suggesting a project that would be tangible enough uh, for the audience to follow him. Uh, even if there is broad uh, support for his criticism of the system, uh, there is still a deeply ingrained fear that the, the fall of the system would result uh, in, in chaos. So it doesn't uh, provide a picture uh, of some, some kind of clear picture of stable everyday life after the death of Putin. So that's uh, that's one issue. And the second short remark is that even uh, although there is no movement at that point, uh, this goes back, to, goes back to, to your question, in a depoliticized country, it doesn't take that much to generate a change. Because even a small, relatively small uh, mobilization or consolidation is already a factor uh, for the public life. Uh, when there is so much atomization around you, well, that's, that's what Navalny's electoral strategy is based on. When you uh, mobilize 10 to 15 percent of uh, new voters, it is already a major change for the for the election outcome uh, because normally the elections are won with uh, 10 to 15 to 20 perhaps uh, percent of the voters uh, so even a small scale mobilization might be enough in that case there's some uh, really good questions coming in the chat that i want to uh, direct to some of you uh, so here's one directed to you uh, svetlana 
uh, and you're talking about possible political space open for new contestation uh, of the current government, uh, how might these possibilities be utilized by people? How is this space, how can it, the space be organized? Or even how do you understand it? And, and the comment is, I'm asking in relation to the recent events in Moscow with the mass detention of municipal deputies. Yeah, that, that's actually a very good question, because of course the uh, kind of the situation is complicated, uh, right? Because we sometimes we cannot really uh, gather together in order to discuss political agendas, even if there is a request and we do want to, uh, to do it. Uh, but I think still, like for example, what I observe right now, just like looking around, I see that uh, some uh, political activists, for example, and intellectuals try to organize debates, for example, online debates. Uh, about different political agendas, political programs and stuff like that. So I think uh, what we uh, can try doing right now is to use as much as possible online space. I mean, uh, for now, it's still kind kind of possible. And I think it's, it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another question. Um, you know, all three of you have spoken about uh, a kind of political desire, right? Political contestation. But here's a question about the economic basis of the regime. And here I'm going to ask you, Ilya, about this. You know, is there economic grievances that are part of the the dis- political dissatisfaction or growing protest feelings? And especially since recent news has pointed to growing food prices. Uh, what can you say about the role of the, you know, people's relationship to the economy? And is there a desire for, with that political alternative, some kind of economic alternative? Yeah, so uh, so uh, even during the recent protests, they were quite clear that the topic of poverty, the topic of the economic, uh, of the social inequality became kind of the central uh, in this protest. And uh, basically it was uh, instrumentalized by, by Navalny in, uh, in a very effective way because uh, uh, most of his investigations and of course the last investigation uh, about the Putin's uh, palace were focused on the uh, feeling of the gap in between the rich and, and most of the population of the of the country so in this way you can say that of course we we have this feeling of the social uh, protest the protest against the social inequality as a kind of central and the most uh, important uh, emotion uh, and feeling in this uh, in this movement maybe even more important as uh, than um, just a political uh, protest against uh, a lack of de- democratic rights uh, and so on. But um, I, I think that it's not easy and it's very problematic uh, to translate, let's say, some economic problems and uh, some feelings of the social uh, inequality into the concrete political action. Um, for example, uh, three years ago, we had a pension reform, uh, which was very, uh, very important, very painful, and which uh, led to some kind of passive opposition to more than 90% of uh, population, but th- there was no uh, any uh, strong and um, offensive political protest movement coming out from this uh, dissatisfaction with the pension reform. So I think that uh, this this relation uh, between the economic situation and political uh, protest is not so uh, so direct. So you can say that the rise of the prices uh, immediately 
push the uh, protest movement. Yeah, I uh, I would generally agree with with Elias' uh, comments, but uh, maybe I would uh, slightly disagree with uh, small details. Uh, so speaking about the recent protests, unfortunately, we uh, do not, at least far as I know, uh, we do not have any data about uh, social composition of protesters because researchers who conducted uh, surveys and short short interviews at the rallies, uh, they were asking only some questions about age, about uh, education. Uh, but yeah, so we, we don't know that but what uh, we know about uh, kind of slogans and demands which uh, were on the uh, signs uh, during the protest and which uh, also were uh, voiced out by uh, protesters during interviews, uh, we see uh, here that actually this um, kind of uh, typical for Navalny's protest rhetoric were dominating like uh, for civic liberties, against police brutality, for better future, just very abstract idea of better future. And uh, even uh, so researchers uh, say that even uh, slogans against corruption were not that popular compared to previous uh, protests, like anti-corruption protests. Um, so, and yeah, sometimes there were some uh, kind of uh, complaints about uh, this growing inequality between like super rich and uh, very poor, but they were not that actually popular as one could expect after the movie, right? Uh, the movie about uh, Putin's, um, so-called Putin's palace. Yeah, but what I think why I do agree with uh, in general with Ilya's comments because I think uh, so what we see in polls again we see that protest moods and dissatisfaction of people are growing and especially growing among the people with low income and also we see that uh, uh, as I think already uh, said that uh, many of um, uh, people who are dissatisfied they do not support Navalny and my feeling here although I, I'm not sure about my feeling here is there are uh, kind of quite a big uh, group of relatively big group of people who are uh, economically dissatisfied, who want more social agenda, but they for many, for some reasons, for many reasons, do not trust Navalny and do not go to this particular protest, but they uh, do exist and they are there. Uh, Greg, do you have any sense of in terms of polling on attitudes towards the economy and the social economic situation in Russia? First of all, it is uh, normally uh, one of the major complaints when the when the pollsters are asking the respondents about what are the what are the complaints, what are the fears, the fears about the economy, about the prices, the instability. That's that's always on the top, uh, and that's actually the reason I, why I wouldn't give too much attention to that because that's that's more or less stable. Of course, under the pandemic, the fears increased a bit. Now, just over the last uh, one or two months, we're seeing uh, the level of confidence um, growing a bit after going down in, in 2020. Now it's it growing a bit. But what I think is more important, and that's, that, that might be one of the unexpected outcomes of the, uh, of the pandemic uh, in Russia, and it actually aggravates some of the tendencies that were already in the place, is that various segments or parts of the population are very unevenly affected uh, by the pandemic, uh, main, mostly because of the, of the policies adopted by the government. Uh, because it was it was quite cynical in in the summer of 2020 when the government chose to support uh, those uh, whom it needed to go to the polls to vote uh, uh, for the constitutional amendments on the plebiscite and disregarded the rest. And that actually created uh, a very strong divide 
And among the people who suffer the most are, of course, those who do not depend on the government. They are uh, most, most, the, the, the most, the most independent people. Uh, and that already, that aggravates the, the, the tendency that already existed. Because there was already a kind of uh, tension between these uh, these two groups, and that might be a kind of outcome. Well, we, let's 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 see what happens uh, in in April when uh, Putin is supposed to start uh, handing out some money. But it might be that that will be uh, once again distributed unevenly, and that will uh, contribute to a, a more complicated composition of the Russian society. That's probably one of the most important things now, that the the composition becomes uh, far less homogeneous and composed of uh, many uh, different layers. Ilya, the, the recent scandal involving uh, Amnesty International stripping Navalny of his prisoner of conscious label, um, I'm not interested in the, the actual amnesty thing. Um, but what it did, though, is it brought back uh, Navalny's, you know, past... Uh, nationalist, racist, and anti-immigrant sentiments really back into the the news. I mean, particularly uh, in some of the circles I, I tra- you and I travel in. What what is your your view uh, of Navalny's nationalism? Uh, so uh, first of all, I I, I think that um, uh, the recent discussion about Navalny's uh, nationalism is uh, it's. Uh, quite uh, clear uh, move uh, from the discussion about his uh, illegal arrest and uh, imprisonment. Uh, so uh, I, I, I think that uh, that's uh, kind of a bit of uh, m- speculative uh, discussion that we have right now. But uh, of course, uh, the uh, problem of uh, Navalny's nationalist uh, position is, is not something invented uh, in the in the moment. So that is something that that is a historical fact, and this uh, historical fact is, uh, I think, can uh, tell us uh, a lot about uh, the approach uh, to the political ideas, uh, which is uh, typical for Navalny, and about his, uh, let's say, political evolution in the uh, last uh, in the last decade. So my uh, view of this problem is that uh, Navalny, his core ideas are still uh, liberal. So they were formed in some uh, early 2000s when he was a member of uh, Yabloka and more or less uh, remain unchanged uh, during all, all this period. But in the same time uh, from, uh, from the 2000s, uh, he believed that ideas in some way are instrumental. They are secondary to the uh, political action and uh, to the task of the concrete uh, political moment. So that was uh, was a reason why he turned to to the nationalist Turks in the late uh, 2000s, and then through his own uh, practice, uh, found that they are not effective uh, in creating a broad coalition and they are uh, not effective on electoral level. So, for example, in 2013, when Navalny stood for the Moscow mayoral uh, election and his campaign was very successful, so he got 27% and uh, came uh, second. So that was a moment when he used very actively the points against the migrants and, and, and so on, as all the other candidates in these elections, including, for example, the uh, candidate uh, from the Communist Party. 
but uh, the result, uh, Navalny's result in these elections uh, came absolutely not because of his nationalist position. But the result of the um, current mayor, the mayor uh, supported by the party of uh, power, uh, was in some way much more dependent from his nationalist uh, rhetorics in the in the moment. So uh, it it was clear uh, that uh, the uh, anti-immigrant sentiments as the electoral strategy as as a public strategy in Russia works effectively only if it's produced from the position of power. So if you have police on your side and you can make something practical against migrants, not just rhetorics, but build a concentration camp, for example, deport some hundreds of people and give a picture of real action for the people who are ready to vote for it, but uh, uh, who are not ready to take the part in a racist pogrom uh, by themselves. So that is the other side of this uh, uh, depolitization that uh, <laughs> Greg was was uh, talking uh, talking before. So I, I think that uh, became uh, quite clear for uh, Navalny uh, after this experience of the of the mayoral elections uh, in uh, Moscow. And and for now he totally switched uh, his rhetorics, which became more uh, let's say social populist. But uh, he never uh, apologized or or. Um, complain about uh, his uh, previous position simply because uh, he, uh, I, I think, um, uh, wants to, to keep some opportunity for, for the future, for the change of the situation when this uh, type of uh, rhetorics in one way or, or another uh, could, could be useful. Yeah, I think I have I have two two quick comments. One of them is that uh, I think the, the best way to look at Navalny is uh, seeing him as a natural democrat. I don't think he's a liberal. Uh, probably he used to be a liberal in the early nineties, exactly when he when he was a member of the Yabloka Party. But after that, he actually uh, changed his mind a lot. Uh, and that that is, that is quite natural for an active politician in the in, in Russia under Putin, because there was a, a lot of intellectual work done here to reconsider, for for instance, the 90s uh, and the the reforms of the 90s. Well, if you're interested, you can look up. I think it's it's very instructive. There uh, there was a, a discussion between him and Adam Michnik, the the famous Polish dissident, uh, was published in in Russian. I'm not sure it was translated into uh, English. Uh, would be actually a very good thing to to do that, and there Navalny uh, actually puts a lot of a lot of blame on uh, on Yeltsin and his government for what was going on in the nineties, and he even goes as far as saying, "Well, what is uh, happening right now to me?" And at that point, his brother was in jail, so he says, "Well, the fact is, my my brother is in jail is probably the price I am paying for for my previous support of uh, of Yeltsin." So he kind of tries to distance himself from the old-style liberals. And it's also obvious that he's drifting leftwards just because he wants to build some kind of democratic coalition, a broad coalition that would probably include right-wing demands, the left-wing demands, but the coalition against the centralized authoritarian power. And for that reason, he has to keep everyone on board. So that was the first comment. I just said, second one is very short. I, I kind of feel uh, very impressed by the fact that uh, Navalny's uh, nationalist past 
which is no longer discussed in, in Russia, even on this uh, state-controlled TV. I don't know, Ilya watches the state-controlled media more often, probably you will correct me, but as far as I understand, uh, well, it used to be a, a, a target of, of criticism, like five or probably seven years ago, uh, but now it is not even mentioned on the state-controlled TV. They, they, they totally forgot about that. Uh, so this is a complete non-issue in Russia for uh, everyone, including the, the, the state-controlled propaganda. The fact that it, it, it has surfaced uh, in the United States, for instance, as a key thing about Navalny just tells a whole lot about the cleavage uh, between the, the political discourses. Uh, so just, just to give you a very, uh, very broad impression, it is, it is a complete non-issue uh, in, in Russia now, even though it is it is true, of course, but it is not a non-issue in, in Russia, his, his nationalist past. I think it's not, honestly, really important. I mean, of course, we can uh, try to uh, study Navalny's uh, personal political evolution, and there is some evolution, of course, but I honestly think that this is not that important, because, I mean... Uh, like, who cares what, I mean, like, uh, it, it's it's not that important right now what uh, Navalny uh, believes inside his head, right? What is important is how he presents himself, his political program, for example, and in his political program, we see the mix. We see some kind of quite uh, right uh, liberal uh, reforms and ideas. We see some very typical social uh, democrat uh, democratic ideas and stuff like that. And again, he presents himself as a, more like as a uh, somebody who just stands against Putin by himself. So his uh, symbol is important. His personality is important, right? And so these ideological uh, kind of ideas uh, go kind of on the, uh, they are not in the front of his speeches and stuff like that. So I think this is more important. I, I ju just want to add to, to what uh, Svetlana was just saying. I slightly disagree because the one thing is the public uh, rhetorics of Navalny and his uh, public programs and another thing is uh, some kind of uh, experts whom uh, he personally trusts. So there are some exact uh, type of people like Sergei Guriev or uh, Evgeny Chichvarkin or uh, some others who are the experts to whom Navalny delegate even the work on his own program and uh, to uh, whom he, uh, he uh, expects some ideas that could be used in his practice. And from the this, uh, people uh, of, the, of this team, it's quite clear that these people, they are liberals. So some of them, like Chichvarkin, uh, far-right, uh, kind of libertarian liberals. Uh, some of them a bit of uh, social liberals like Gurif. Uh, but uh, basically, you, you can see no any uh, non liberal uh, economist or non-liberal uh, scientist uh, around uh, Navalny among his experts. Yeah, yeah, that's true. If you, if we look at uh, people who work with uh, for him with his programs, that's yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, here's another uh, question from the chat. Um, since we've been mostly talking about opposition and weaknesses of the government, the question, of course, arises: is well, what about the electorate? Um, you know, a large percentage of the Russian population is is employed by state-run or state-affiliated enterprises. You have a large contingent that's employed by the state itself. Well, what kind of political, you know, how does this affect a people's political perceptions and political actions? And, and in what possible way can the opposition work with or, or try to appeal to this part of the electorate? I'll leave this open to anyone who'd like to jump in. 
Well, if I may, I feel like uh, there's a lot of actually, that, 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 that's what I've, I've mentioned in, in the very beginning, that there's a lot of demand for, uh, for a political alternative. And that's, that's one of the things we were impressed during our studies of the uh, younger generations. Uh, we held a study in 2019 and then compared it to we did a qualitative study and then we compared it to quantitative study uh, conducted by colleagues. So one of the interesting things is that significant share of this uh, of uh, this age cohort is ready to, to to take some part in politics if it uh, changes a bit. Well, they are not ready to go and vote for the Just Russia Party, uh, but uh, they're pretty much ready to be part of a meaningful movement. And that creates a lot of opportunities, actually. Uh, we are seeing the growing streamline of uh, donations to opposition politicians. Actually, at this point, you already can launch a, a campaign based on popular donations only. It, and it doesn't it doesn't take to be to be Navalny uh, to to start that. So there's a lot of interest uh, in in this segment of the electorate, uh, and uh, whether these people are uh, employed by state-run enterprises is not that important actually, uh, because among the the lower bureaucracy. I would say there is a growing discontent. These are people who are uh, oftentimes devoted to, to what they are doing, and uh, they are more and more disillusioned about the meaning of the system they are participating in. Uh, for that reason, uh, it often happens that when they are forced to, to go and vote, they would vote for the Communist Party. Uh, and and that this, this is also a, a growing tendency uh, out there. So I wouldn't say that this is a major obstacle. There's a lot of them, including, of course, the first obstacle, whether they will count the ballots at all this fall. But uh, the electorate is, is actually a whole lot of new opportunities right now. I wanted to turn, there's a several questions in the chat directed towards Greg around the issue of polling. Um, I, it's good, hard for me to encapsulate them all into one. But I think I think maybe the question would be, you know, you, you mentioned that Russia is a depoliticized society and it's reliant on this production and reproduction of the plebiscite through polls as a mechanism of governance and reproducing the legitimacy of the, the government. If society is so depoliticized to the point where you said if you want to spoil a party start talking about politics how do these polls actually are able to even capture like political public opinion in terms of political preference well the truth is that they they, they don't but they won't tell you uh well the, the the big secret of the polling industry of course anywhere not only in russia is that uh the response rates are incredibly low, uh, low right now well, in uh, in the U.S., they went into single digits uh, several years ago, I think. And in Russia, it's pretty much the same thing. So basically, when you learn that there is 65% of the Russians uh, out there supporting Putin, you have to multiply that by 10% uh, of the participation. And we know almost nothing about the, the rest. Uh, well, we can, of course, proceed from uh, the assumption that the rest is like the, the, the 10%. But this is basically, well, this is very ill-founded. And the trick is uh, to depoliticize the majority of, of the population and then to bring the, to the polling stations or to the polls those who are willing to comply. 
that was the trick played by by the pollsters and the and, and that's that's actually the explanation why the polls uh, normally would match pretty well uh, the official uh, returns uh, during the elections there were only two or three occasions where they, that, that didn't work because when you have a large mobilization from below it is exactly at this point that the, uh, that the polls uh, fail to uh, to predict the the outcome of the elections uh, otherwise, uh, it is mostly the same people who are willing to uh, answer to the poll questions and to go to the uh, to the polling stations. So the truth is that there is this uh, silent majority uh, waiting out there around the corner. I mean, it's it's so it, it begs the question, of course, like these polls sound like a, a kind of discursive trick. They basically are there to reproduce the discourse, and I find it interesting because particularly after these pro most recent protests, it seemed like there was an anxiousness towards the poll. Like, when are the polls going to come out? When are the polls come out? And in, in American media, they cite polls about Russia, you know, particularly from the Levada Center, you know, about Putin's popularity, et cetera, et cetera. And so they, they have a lot of authority. Is this basically their, in your view, you know, their main, their only role is just to reproduce a certain discourse? I wouldn't say this is the only role, but this is certainly the crucial role. Uh, they reproduce legitimacy uh, both inside the country uh, and uh, and abroad, uh, and so they were they 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 are meant to produce these feelings. Well, as I think Barack Obama said at at, at some point, well, I don't like the guy, but he we we have to admit that he was able to keep his poll numbers really high. Uh, so that that's that's how it was supposed to work. They have other functions as well. Uh, that's kind of a feedback loop a little bit for uh, those who are taking decisions. And we have to keep in mind that uh, they are cleverly filtered uh, so that uh, a lot of uh, numbers that might generate some uh, doubt or pluralism inside the society, uh, they are normally not uh, allowed to be uh, to be published at all. So they stay within the presidential administration, who normally commands uh, those uh, those polls. But basically, yes, this is the this is a tool for producing legitimacy. And in this kind of regime, uh, as I said, this is this is a crucial thing because when there is this uh, feeling that Putin is no longer supported by the vast majority of the population, this is actually where we are where we are, we've been going for the last two or three years. He becomes a niche politician with a very big niche. But this is mortal to him, because if he becomes a politician with the niche of like 40%, and he has an opponent who has 32%, that will be the end of the regime. Because both the bureaucracy, the elites, and, and the, the, the people wouldn't have any explanation of why would you support someone with 40% or someone with 32%. The meaning is that uh, there is no alternative at all. And this is uh, reproduced uh, through opinion. Well, I would say that although I, of course, uh, share this uh, this uh, skepticism, but I would still say that uh, we can see some uh, meaningful tendencies in the polls, right? So when uh, some kind of uh, the same polls with similar questions conducted during 10 years, and we see how numbers uh, change, and we see some clear tendency, I think it's something we still should take into account. No, no, I, to I totally agree. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what I mentioned in the very beginning, that uh, we have those tendencies. And actually, what's, that's the explanation why, well, remember, yeah, I mentioned that there are two types of questions. One of them is a plebiscitarian question, whether you trust the leader. 
Uh, and the other one is the open-ended question, who, whom do you trust? So the second one is uh, now almost uh, prohibited from being published, uh, be, precisely because the, the ratings have been falling down. Well, you still can find it on the website, but you have to do a terrible lot of work to, to, to do that. It is not formally banned, but it will be. If, if the ratings go uh, further down, uh, it will be banned. It used to be published uh, widely. Now it is uh, almost hidden. Svetlana, you, uh, a lot of your research looks at youth participation. And, and I remember, I think it was in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, there was another kind of brief uh, eruption of mass protests. And uh, there was a lot of fixation on youth participation and, and a kind of searching for uh, what I call the searching for the next revolutionary subject in Russia that's going to push things to, to, the, to you know, some, some end. Um, what do you make of, and, and of course, with the most recent uh, uh, protests, there is this also this question, and it's also, a, it seems to be a moral panic amongst the regime itself with youth participation in, in these protest actions. So talk about youth participation. What is, what is your, your take on, on its role? So maybe it starts with the, uh, with the recent uh, protests. So um, first of all, we see that recent protests did actually become younger compared to, uh, for example, the FFA election movement in 2011-2012. Because we do have some uh, short interviews results conducted during this protest, and we know some, some numbers. And we know that the most uh, represented age group uh, during the uh, recent protest were people in between 18 and 35. Uh, and uh, this is uh, different from, from what we uh, had uh, during the FFA election movement, so the protest was quite uh, older. And uh, this is not actually uh, surprising because we uh, see again both in uh, some uh, surveys, like we see this tendency of uh, growing politicization of young people and the gap between how young people evaluate many political events and how people over 55 generation evaluates political events and stuff like that. So we see this in the polls. I also saw the similar tendency of young people politicization during the last several year years in my interviews and my qualitative data. Uh, so yeah, this is actually not not surprising. We could have expected. Uh, the other thing, as, as as you said, during this uh, recent protest, on the eve of this protest and right after them, uh, we had a specific discussion, not just about young young people political participation, but uh, about uh, possible children's involvement in the protest. And this narrative was, I mean, partly it was of course a moral panic, but uh, part of this narrative was purposefully produced by state controlled media on the eve of the protest and right after it uh, in order to depict uh, kind of Navalny personally and uh, oppositional politicians as uh, kind of uh, immoral uh, adults who uh, just uh, want to get naive children to the streets uh, to manipulate them, uh, to use them for uh, achieving their political goals, etc. etc. And even uh, older protesters were kind of compared to these naive uh, children, right? who do not just understand what what they're doing it uh, doing here and this this narrative was was really popular and i have several several thoughts about it so first children did participate in a main mass protest uh, in russia during the last 10 years and uh, their number has uh, not actually been uh, changing substantially 
always was like several percent, three, four, five, uh, depending on the event and depending on how do we count, of course. Uh, and uh, this number was not uh, bigger, not higher in in the uh, in the case of uh, last protest, maybe even lower. Uh, but what I think did change is not that more children started to participate in politics, uh, but uh, the way they uh, how they uh, did it and how they do it. Uh, so my research showed, for example, that uh, in 2011, 2012, during this uh, for fair election movement, many children took a kind of uh, traditional children's uh, roles at the protest rallies. So they were there, uh, but they were rather helping adults. They were not fully protesting based on what they're doing and based on how they perceive themselves. And starting from 2017 and today, they rather take just regular adult roles and they see themselves and present themselves as uh, no different from adult protesters. Interesting because um, like adult observers uh, see children's participation as something uh, exceptional, but uh, children themselves actually do not at all. And uh, another, another point I want to make here is that uh, so when uh, researchers uh, saw that uh, no more than uh, several percent of children participated in the recent protest, uh, they uh, started uh, to uh, expose this uh, kind of state-produced narrative about children participation is a fake, is a lie. And I think uh, this is true and this is very important work to do. But also it's important to ask for us to ask a question of why uh, this topic became actually so popular because it was partly moral panic and it was rapidly spread uh, within the society from below, not just on uh, federal channels. And uh, what is interesting, it was also uh, in a different way, of course, but still uh, used by uh, the protesters and uh, supporters of protesters. And this is much rarely discussed right now, but protesters are also like supporters of protests, let's say. Uh, they also talked about uh, the possibility of children's participation on the eve of the protest but they depicted uh, children as a kind of more natural critics of Putin uh, because innocent children cannot stand the regime li- uh, kind of regime regime's li- lie right so even if if we see even innocent children go to the streets well then like it's kind of self-evident fact that so- something is wrong and I would say that uh, the popularity of such rhetoric is kind of a symptom of the uh, crisis of uh, traditional political language we have right now. Because uh, in the situation when a society uh, lacks a developed party system and developed uh, political language of uh, competition of different agendas, of different political ideas, political progress, etc., the reference uh, to something morally exceptional kind of replaces it. And uh, this is what uh, allows uh, both sides, actually, to uh, legitimize themselves and to delegitimize the opponent. And of course, children's political participation is uh, seen uh, not only in Russia, actually, as something exceptional. And then we see that according to the state, uh, the opposition is kind of beyond good and evil because they use innocent children for their political goals. And according to the protesters, their position is morally superior because 
even innocent children go to protest uh, because they cannot stand this lie of the regime, right? So this is what we have instead of uh, conversation in terms of uh, political demands, agendas and programs. So uh, I, I want maybe to develop some points uh, already mentioned by uh, Svetlana because uh, I think that uh, in all this uh, moral panic about the massive participation of uh, youth and uh, some uh, particular use character of this uh, protest, uh, there is a big element of, let's say, cultural war uh, that uh, that is produced by the by the state. I don't want to reduce all this topic to the cultural war, but uh, if you um, compare it with the mobilizations. Uh, for the fair elections in 2011-2012, you can see that in that moment, the main model of the cultural war uh, was the opposition between the minority of uh, the Moscow and St. Petersburg-based wealthy uh, uh, middle class uh, and the silent majority of, uh, let's say, conservative, hard-working people who support Putin. So for now, the lines of the cultural war that that are implemented by the pro-Kremlin media, for example, they exactly lie in the question of the gap in between generations. And according to this narrative, so you have the young people as someone who who lost or, or who break with the authority of the of the father who are breaking, say, uh, some organic type of um, allegiance uh, to the older generation. And the confrontation uh, between the protest movement and, let's say, some constructed, pro, probably pro-Putin, hard-working traditional majority uh, exactly come to this, uh, to this point. So uh, you have the uh, irresponsible uh, young people uh, who uh, deny the traditions and deny the power of the father, <laughs> and you have uh, and, and and you have the older generations uh, who uh, probably will. Uh, support uh, the uh, current regime simply because they have some personal experience that the young people hasn't. So uh, that's, uh, I think, the very very important uh, element, which strangely paralleled with the with the rhetorics of of uh, Navalny supporters, for example, because uh, there the lack of the political alternative and the political project uh, somehow uh, compensate with the idea of the oppositions with the uh, uh, between the generations, where uh, Putin presented not just as the corrupted leader, but also as the old person, the person who who is not, uh, let's say, contemporary, who don't understand how the internet is working, uh, what are the social media, so, and uh, he is a leader of the some older uh, generation with a Soviet experience uh, who occupied the government uh, who, uh, who are the current elite. So uh, the protest movement uh, in, uh, in this uh, picture of world uh, pretend to be a kind of revolt of the uh, young uh, people uh, against uh, those old the generation who uh, want to, to steal their future. And uh, I, I, I think that uh, this type of confrontation is very dangerous and it uh, actually gave some chance uh, for the 
re-establishment of the of the electoral support uh, for uh, for the ruling party, for example, in the in the in the coming elections. Yeah, just to give a slightly different picture, although I, I agree with most of the Sveta and Ilya said, I, I think we have to, to emphasize several things. Well, first of all, there is obviously a, a divide between, not, not between the younger generations and the rest, but uh, rather between the, uh, the elderly people and the rest. So there's not the, 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 the war between the fathers and, and the sons, but rather between the grandsons and the grandfathers. Uh, or, or the grandfathers and, and, and the rest. Uh, and this can be seen uh, in those polls that I, uh, that I ha- had criticized earlier. And that, emer- that keeps re-emerging again and again since 2018. On all major occasions, you uh, see how those age groups uh, react in a very different way on all the uh, major political events, including the constitutional plebiscite, including the beatings of the uh, rallies in uh, 2019, including Navalny uh, and his uh, support in, in 2021. So on all of those occasions, you have a real divide. And kind of, you know, disregarding it, would be just squandering a major opportunity and uh, ignoring a real conflict that is emerging in uh, in society. And part of this conflict, I mean, uh, it's obviously the fact that the elite, which is uh, roughly 60, 70 years old, they actually tend to reproduce the late Soviet style, which is, excuse me, annoying uh, for the rest and and uh, particularly for the for the younger people. These these are just facts. But then the question is, and here I agree with Ilya, what do you make of this, uh, of these facts? How do you transfer these cross-sectional differences into ideological confrontation? And the way it is done now, I agree, is not really promising, precisely because it, it is translated uh, into a very easily refutable uh, statement that, well, we are younger and therefore we're better. Why so, uh, exactly? And that kind of recreates the worst version of the 68 uh, in Russia, uh, when the, the youngsters pretend to be better just because they are younger. Well, there is a certain truth to that, because there is actually a lack of upward mobility. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this extreme inequality that we're observing now is, of course, reflected on the age dimension. Because the, the elderly people, of course, have concentrated all, all the wealth and they are not willing to let the, let the, the younger generations uh, rule the country. Uh, so th- th- I think that's, that's actually a, a major uh, riddle now that has to be solved uh, in order to make some progress. Because it is impossible just to uh, leave it behind, the, these, these general, generational cleavages, which are objective. And there is uh, a lot of reasons behind them. But of course, uh, to translate them into simple and pure intergenerational conflict would be a, a huge mistake. I agree here with Ilya. The the situation all three of you spelled out, and this is 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 also in conjunction to a question that I see in the chat, is Russian politics now. There seems to be cleavages for opportunity. For, for other political forces, whether in the local, regional, even federal level, to possibly take advantage of. So the question is, do you envision or can you see the possibility of a moral pluralistic politics emerging in Russia that, you know, potentially can produce a, a leader different from Alexei Navalny? Or 
is does Alexei Navalny and his his the group around him are they they seem to have this great talent of maintaining him as a a cipher or a symbol of of social discontent. So I think that uh, let's say this is a situation that that was created uh, around Navalny and by Navalny force the process of politicization, the politicization which is much broader than just uh, sympathy to Navalny himself. It was already mentioned that even the people who are actively participating in uh, in the protests, they not necessarily declare themselves as uh, as Navalny supporters. So I will say that my own experience during this protest was that most people that I met, they uh, say that they're here not because of uh, Navalny, but because of the general situation uh, and, and because uh, it's, it's kind of the reason uh, for them to express some more general dissatisfaction. So I think that there are a lot of opportunities, for example, for now, for the uh, for the left-wing uh, politics in, in Russia, especially because of the uh, growing politicization of, let's say, young people, their interest to politics and their interest to some clear articulated political uh, projects. And that's, for example, the reason why uh, you have also the growth of uh, interest to the li- uh, libertarian uh, right-wing uh, ideas. So it's, uh, it's uh, different sides of the uh, same tendency. Uh, also, you see how Navalny case somehow influence, push the situation uh, inside Russian Communist Party, where uh, you can see how under the influence of uh, of Navalny in some way, emerged a new generation of uh, activists and new generation of regional uh, public uh, leaders uh, who want to renew the party itself, not uh, and not become just uh, members of some uh, Navalny movement. So that's uh, why I think that uh, that there are a lot of opportunities for uh, different political forces that propose some concrete political and social alternative. Two things, I guess. Uh, so uh, first, I maybe wouldn't underestimate Navalny here. Uh, so sp- uh, speaking about uh, people who come to the protest and say, and this is actually was very, very popular answer uh, for the question uh, of uh, why did you come here, is that I, I'm not, I do not stand for Navalny, but... And then uh, there were many answers like, uh, but uh, Navalny is better than Putin, but I don't like how Navalny was poisoned, etc., etc. So, uh, and it means that at least during the recent protest, Navalny was, uh, and his team was the force who kind of produced the main agenda first. Uh, and then also, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised by the fact that many people just would not say uh, that they do support Navalny, because this is just not a good thing to say in a depoliticized Russian society. So people do not, uh, it's like uh, people usually tend to say that they do not believe media, although they watch TV, they watch independent media, but uh, it's really hard to say, uh, to find somebody who will say that, uh, you know, this is my favorite media and I just believe everything they say. So people just tend to say that they think by themselves, they do not believe leaders, they do not uh, believe media and stuff like that. So I, uh, yeah, so I think this is a part of uh, kind of explanation of why people were saying 
uh, we're saying things like that, that they are not exactly for Navalny here. Uh, the other thing is that, yes, I, uh, I totally agree that uh, I think there are many opportunities uh, for different uh, political forces and different young uh, people uh, to become more visible. And there is a hope. But I think that uh, it probably will be a slow process. Well, perhaps just one thing. Well, we're talking a lot about those new opportunities, and this is totally true. Uh, and this uh, totally new field uh, where you can work. But uh, you know what? There is a certain price for uh, working in, in this field. And this price is uh, being poisoned by Novichok and jailed with, with, a, with, a, with a lifetime sentence. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, that... that takes uh, something and that's what makes Navalny, if not unique, then at least important uh, because he's the one who kind of wants to, to risk it all, who is he's a real politician. It's, it's damn serious about him because we've seen uh, generations of those politicians saying good and right things and then uh, emigrating or suddenly becoming silent, uh, but he's ready to take it all. And uh, he's defiant, uh, he's brutally defiant even when he is jailed. And this is also something new because uh, up until this moment, that was not a, a typical strategy for the political prisoners persecuted by the, uh, by the regime. Uh, he's totally defiant. Uh, he, is not, he doesn't mean to seek for apologies, excuses, uh, justifications. He's just constantly attacking. And then you have to pay price. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, besides the, the ideological field, which I think we are um, more or less in agreement here, there is obviously a lot of ideological opportunities. It will take uh, a change to, you know, to leave this petit bourgeois uh, life where you can take an, yet another consumer loan and start fighting in a brutal political way. That's what distinguishes uh, a real year, I think. That was Ilya Butorajskis, Svetlana Yerplova, and Greg Yudin. Ilya Butorajskis is a political and cultural writer. He currently teaches in the Moscow School for Social and Economic Sciences and the School of Design at the Higher School of Economics. Budrajskis is a current member of the editorial board of Moscow Art Magazine and host of the Russian-language podcast, Political Diary. His book, Dissidents Among Dissidents, was awarded the Andrei Bieli Prize in 2017, and his most recent book, We All Live in the World Huntington Invented, treats modern Russian conservatism. Svetlana Yerpilova is a sociologist, a researcher with Public Sociology Laboratory at the Center for Independent Social Research in Russia, and a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki. Her research is focused on protest movements and collective action, political involvement, political socialization, youth and children's political participation and cognition in Russia and abroad. She's written for a number of academic journals and Russian and international media. Greg Yudin is a professor of political philosophy at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. His research focuses on the political theory of democracy, with a special emphasis on public opinion polls as a technology of representation and governance in contemporary politics. His book, Public Opinion, the Power of Numbers, was published in Russian by European University Press in 2020. He's also a regular contributor to several Russian media outlets.
I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or just recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. The sun is shining on full blast, it's garbage day, air in my tires, and all my cares are far away, I'm looking like a million bucks, feeling good and sort of frisky, plus enough money in my pocket for a quart of whiskey, tattooed teardrops, confetti, I've learned to trust my animal instincts, when farmers' fields turn to dust, this is the day we've been waiting for, for all our lives, so let's write letters to our parents and call our wives, raise the flag, mistake of drive and raise our voices, celebrate our differences, build a bridge and praise our choices, this baby's crying and it makes it hard to go to sleep some days are throwaways and others you're supposed to keep time waits for none of us even though my watch is slow and nothing's for certain but i'm searching for sasquatch and you know what the unknown is all part of the plan for a runaway soul and a hard loving man protest i've added up to here see you get lost this is what we think your ideas protest we're not gonna take it we've been through it so make a wish and break it in two Protest, I've handed up to here, see you get lost, this is what we think your ideas. Protest, we're not gonna take it, we've been through it, so make a wish and break it in two. New beginning, I've washed my hands and made my bed, maybe I'll turn on the television or shave my head, I'm getting kind of bored with the same old.